Welcome back to Rarely Heard, a nine-part series that's all about Hunter Syndrome, a rare and life-changing disease. This podcast is initiated and funded by Takeda Pharmaceuticals. In this series, we want to provide caregivers and patients with a comprehensive overview of Hunter Syndrome and share the perspectives of experts and parents of children with the disease. Rarely Heard is intended for an international audience outside the USA and UK. We hope you enjoyed the first three episodes on the basics of Hunter Syndrome, including its causes, diagnosis and the management options available. In the next few episodes, we will talk to experts to get a deeper understanding of the disease. Today, we have the first of two virtual conversations with Dr. Barbara Burton, a specialist with many years of experience in treating patients with Hunter Syndrome. In this episode, Dr. Burton tells us more about how the different forms of Hunter Syndrome affect patients and how a diagnosis is usually reached. Let's get into the interview. Hello, Dr. Burton. Thank you so much for joining us. We're really looking forward to hearing more about your experience in treating patients with Hunter Syndrome. To start off, could you please tell us more about yourself and your clinical practice? Thank you. It's a pleasure to be joining you on the podcast. My name is Dr. Barbara Burton. I'm from the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University and the Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago, Illinois. I'm a clinical and biochemical geneticist by training and am now serving as director of the mucopolysaccharidosis treatment program at Lurie. I have about 40 to 45 patients with Hunter syndrome under my care and patients are usually referred to me by pediatricians or other geneticists. In the past few years, patients have also been referred to our program after a positive newborn screening test for Hunter syndrome. I've also served as an investigator in numerous clinical trials of new therapies, and many of these trials are still ongoing. Thank you, Dr. Burton. Now, in the previous episodes, we learned that Hunter syndrome can manifest in different ways, and there is a wide spectrum of severity with the disease. Could you tell us more about your clinical experience of patients with Hunter syndrome? How likely are they to have the attenuated versus more severe forms of disease? And how do the symptoms develop over time? Absolutely. As you said, when thinking about Hunter syndrome, it's important to understand that there is tremendous variability among patients and that the clinical features represent a continuous spectrum. It's helpful to think of the two ends of the spectrum represented by the severe or neuronopathic form and the milder or attenuated form. These are differentiated by the presence of cognitive impairment and decline in the severe form and no cognitive impairment in the attenuated form. The clinical features of Hunter syndrome are highly variable, however, among both groups of patients. For instance, even within the severe form, the extent and rate at which cognitive impairment progresses can vary. Overall, about two-thirds of my patients have a severe form of the disorder, which is consistent with reports from around the world. I'll share a couple of examples from my clinic to illustrate the differences between these two forms. 
The first patient has the neuropathic form of the disease. As a little boy, he had frequent ear infections and recurrent diarrhea in the first two years of life. He was referred to an ear, nose, and throat, or ENT specialist, for ear tubes and to an allergist to check whether food allergies were causing the diarrhea. He was also seen by a neurosurgeon because of macrocephaly, which is a larger than normal head size, and the neurosurgeon ruled out hydrocephalus, which means an accumulation of fluid in the brain. The child met his developmental milestones until he was about two and a half years old, after which his speech development slowed down. At that point, it wasn't clear whether this was because of hearing loss from ear infections or a developmental delay. Speech therapy was initiated, but a few months later, a consultant noticed that the child had coarse facial features and referred him to me. After some tests, I diagnosed him with Hunter syndrome and prescribed enzyme replacement therapy, or ERT. Over time, he continued to acquire new developmental skills, but at a slower rate than normal, and he was enrolled in special education. When he was four years old, he began showing signs of hyperactivity and sleep disturbance. He was not toilet trained, and to this day, he is not able to use the toilet independently. He did not acquire any new speech after the age of five, and by the time he was eight years old, he had lost all previous speech. He is now 12 years old and has remained relatively stable without any obvious signs of further decline. These types of plateaus in neurological decline are quite common for patients with severe disease. They may start to decline at varying ages, experience different rates of decline, and stabilize for varying amounts of time. This child is still ambulatory at 12 years of age, and his behavior has improved. His physical problems are relatively mild and have responded well to treatment over the years. The second patient I'll mention has an attenuated form of Hunter syndrome. Aside from frequent ear and upper respiratory tract infections in the first two years of life, he was a healthy, normal baby. When he was three years old, he was referred to an orthopedic surgeon because of joint stiffness and he was diagnosed with arthrogryposis, a rare condition that causes joint contractures. Around the age of five, he was referred to a pediatric cardiologist because of a heart murmur. The echocardiogram revealed a thickening of the heart valves, and the cardiologist believed that this could be due to a lysosomal storage disorder and referred the child to me. Although the child's development had been completely normal, I noticed he had coarse facial features and mild enlargement of the liver and spleen. After some tests, I diagnosed him with Hunter syndrome. Over the years, he developed other problems like growth issues and carpal tunnel syndrome, but generally he is doing very well. He played football in high school and is now a college student with completely normal cognitive abilities. He has no major medical issues and continues to undergo surveillance to detect any possible complications. 
His heart condition has remained stable and no other problems have emerged. I expect him to live a long life with any career that appeals to him. He can also have a family if he wants to. Thanks for sharing the journey of these patients. These cases really do highlight the differences between the severe and attenuated forms of disease and how these can affect patients' lives. Let's try to understand more about the start of the patient journey and the diagnosis of Hunter syndrome. As you shared in these examples, patients can be misdiagnosed or experience delays in their diagnosis. Could you tell us why it is challenging to diagnose Hunter syndrome? Of course, and this is a very good question. A key problem is that many of the earliest symptoms of Hunter syndrome are also very common in the general pediatric population. For example, frequent ear infections, chronic nasal congestion with noisy breathing, hernias, and diarrhea are among the most common early childhood issues that every pediatrician encounters. Many physicians have never seen a patient with Hunter syndrome, which also leads to delays in diagnosis. This diagnostic odyssey is often very frustrating for parents who have a strong feeling that something is wrong with their child, but are reassured by well-meaning physicians that every complaint is common and easily addressed. Patients are often seen by many different specialists for assessment of individual problems before a diagnosis is reached. When I talk to general pediatricians and family physicians, I make the point that if a patient has three or four different problems, even though individually each issue may not be unusual, you should ask yourself whether there is a unifying diagnosis that could explain all of them. There often is one. Other than pediatricians, a wide range of specialists might see patients with Hunter syndrome, depending on the symptoms, organs involved, and the patient's unique disease course. I already mentioned ENT specialists, allergists, neurosurgeons, orthopedic surgeons, and pediatric cardiologists. If the patient has umbilical or inguinal hernias, a pediatric surgeon would be consultant. Or gastroenterologists could be involved if diarrhea is a prominent symptom. Neurologists or developmental pediatricians may be consulted if there is developmental delay. Eventually, the patient will develop symptoms that lead to the suspicion of a genetic disorder. For example, this may happen if a specialist recognizes coarse facial features associated with Hunter syndrome. The final diagnosis is established by a geneticist or metabolic disease specialist, but they usually practice in large academic centers, and not all patients have easy access to them. There can also be long waiting times for appointments, which can cause further delays. Over the years, I think the level of awareness about rare diseases like Hunter's syndrome has increased among primary care physicians, but there are limitations in what we can achieve through education alone. There are thousands of rare disorders, and a physician will probably never see many of these in their years of practice. So it is unreasonable to expect physicians to be familiar with all of these diseases. 
the most important thing is that if there is a suspicion that something may be wrong with the patient beyond what the primary care physician is able to address, they should refer the patient to a diagnostic center. Eventually, I hope that newborn screening programs will eliminate such diagnostic delays and improve outcomes for our patients by allowing treatment to be started earlier. However, at present, newborn screening is only carried out in a few countries, and it will likely take some time before it becomes more widespread. I see. Yes, I can understand why reaching a diagnosis is pretty challenging for rare diseases like Hunter syndrome, and hopefully this diagnostic delay will be reduced in the future. Are there any differences in the diagnostic journey for patients with the attenuated versus severe forms of disease? Yes, there are. In my experience, patients with attenuated forms are usually diagnosed later. This was also observed in the Hunter Outcomes Survey, a study of patients with Hunter syndrome that has been going on for the past 10 years. I think the difference is primarily because patients with attenuated forms of the disease do not initially show developmental delays. If a child is growing and developing normally, a physician is less likely to attach significance to physical findings like recurrent infections, joint stiffness, or even changes in facial features. An enlarged liver or spleen will always grab a physician's attention, but I think these could be overlooked in a general pediatric examination because patients with Hunter syndrome have thicker skin, which makes it hard to palpate their abdomen. On the other hand, patients with a severe form of the disorder and developmental delays or regression are typically referred more promptly for evaluation. That makes sense, as the severe forms of disease are more apparent. Is there anything that parents or caregivers can do to try to overcome these challenges or reduce the time taken to reach a diagnosis? Yes, I think parents can help speed up the diagnostic process to an extent. If a child has multiple medical issues, it would be good to ask the physician whether there could be a connection between the issues. If they feel that their child's problems are not being adequately addressed, they need to be persistent and push for further evaluation or referrals. As a parent, you spend more time with your child than a physician would during a short consultation. And in my experience, it's likely that physicians may miss something that you have observed at home. It's good to be vocal about describing your concerns. I think it helps to write down your concerns before a consultation, as it can be easy to forget to mention all of them in the hustle and bustle of a visit. Once a diagnosis has been reached, do bring up any new findings or changes in your child with your physician. I can share a few examples of these. Some complications can present suddenly, while others may be slow to develop. Patients with severe forms of Hunter syndrome may develop seizures. So if you notice any episodes of apparent loss of consciousness, blacking out, repetitive rhythmic movements, repetitive eye blinking or lip smacking, this could indicate seizure activity. Biting or chewing of the hands could mean that the child is experiencing pain or a tingling sensation, which could indicate carpal tunnel syndrome. 
If you notice any such unusual behavior in your child, I suggest you take a video of it to show your physician, as the behavior might not occur during a visit. These are just a few examples, but any unusual or new behavior could potentially be significant. It's good to remember that parents can play an active role in advocating for their child and voicing their concerns. Going back to the point of diagnosis, it must be very difficult for families to find out that their child has Hunter's syndrome. How do you share such news with them? And what would you tell them to expect in the years to come? Sharing the news of a serious diagnosis like Hunter's syndrome is always very difficult. However, many families I've talked to are also aware that this could be a possibility because they know the type of testing that is being done and have some knowledge of what it could mean. In this day and age, they have access to information online and often are already quite knowledgeable. It's best for both parents to be present if the test results are shared over the telephone or during a video call. After that, I always ask families to come in as soon as possible for a face-to-face -face discussion of the diagnosis, expectations for the future, treatment recommendations, and the approach towards monitoring the child for possible complications. It's important to review the genetic basis of the disorder and discuss recurrence risks for future children. Sometimes there are siblings who need to be tested as well. I feel it's important to be very realistic and honest about the diagnosis and prognosis, but to be hopeful at the same time. There is treatment available for the physical aspects of the disorder, and ERT can prolong life. While we do not have any approved therapies in most countries for cognitive decline, there are many investigational therapies in clinical trials. So I think there is every reason to believe that we will have additional treatments over time. I always encourage families to contact patient organizations, such as Rare Diseases International, or other organizations in their area for additional support and information. In the US, the National MPS Society is the main organization, but there are many such groups around the world. In some cases, group meetings can allow patients and families with the same disorder to meet one another. I believe these contacts are so important for many patients and families because they often feel very alone when confronted with the diagnosis of a rare disorder that they've never heard of. Meeting other patients or parents can provide a type of support that just cannot come from healthcare providers alone. There is so much information to be shared with newly diagnosed families that it cannot possibly be covered in a single visit. So reinforcement is needed over time. Unfortunately, at the time of diagnosis, we often don't have enough information to answer all the questions that parents may have. For example, we cannot always determine whether a patient will have a severe or attenuated form of the disease, especially for patients who are young and don't have obvious cognitive involvement. Sometimes finding out the specific mutation behind the patient's disease can help, but this is not always the case as some types of mutations 
can cause both severe and attenuated forms of the disease. However, if there are other affected family members, like older brothers or uncles, we can predict the form of the disease based on what is observed in those individuals. Although there can be variability in specific symptoms, the disease always runs true in families. So within the family, affected individuals will all have either the attenuated or neuropathic form of Hunter's syndrome. After the diagnosis is established, we carry out several tests to determine the extent of the disease. These may include echocardiograms, MRI of the brain and spine, bone x-rays, and sleep studies, depending on the patient's needs and previous testing. This gives us a good baseline to monitor the impact of treatment and assess disease progression. We cannot specifically predict how long a child will live or which complications will occur, but we can describe what is likely to happen. I see. It seems like it takes time to understand how the disease will progress, but having realistic expectations and the support of other families in the same situation can help. Well, we've had a good discussion about the spectrum of patients with Hunter syndrome and how the disease is diagnosed. Could you please help us summarize some of the main points we talked about? Sure. As we discussed, Hunter's syndrome has a continuum of severity, and the two ends of the spectrum, the neuropathic and attenuated forms, are differentiated by the presence of cognitive impairment and decline in the severe or neuropathic form. Patients with this form of the disorder usually succumb to their disease because of the neurologic decline. However, there is marked variability in both forms of the disorder, and the physical symptoms vary in their severity and age of onset. Cognitive decline can vary substantially as well. There is treatment available for all patients, and it can significantly improve long-term outcomes and quality of life. We also have tremendous hope for the future, as many new treatments are being evaluated in clinical trials. Some of these may prove to be successful in halting cognitive decline, while others could eliminate the need for weekly ERT and provide even better results for our patients. Yes, definitely. We really hope that new therapies in the future will continue to improve outcomes for patients. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Burton, for your time and for sharing your insights into the diagnosis of Hunter's syndrome today. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you. That's it for this episode of the Rarely Heard podcast. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the discussion with Dr. Burton. Join us for the next episode, where we will continue our talk with her and find out more about how Hunter's syndrome can be managed with multidisciplinary care. This podcast series is initiated and funded by Takeda Pharmaceuticals and is intended for an international audience outside of the USA and UK.